Saturday. What day is it today? Wednesday. Exactly. Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm going to talk on the talking screen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. What up, people? And freelance writer and critic Rod Nehru. Lockdown fun down. Yeah, Sydney. That's what I've been doing. I've been watching so many first watches. It's been an incredible two dozen or so, quite a lot, because that's what we are doing, because we are in lockdown for the next for the next little bit. We should mm-hmm. announce that we are recording this on the Tuesday night, so we're not sure any news that may not have been announced as of today, Wednesday, the 7th of July, so yeah. we'll news bulletin for that. We um, expect we'll be giving you another lockdown episode next week, but uh, you know more than us at this point. So, um, yeah, the Cannes Film Festival will also have opened by the time you're listening to this. So cinema goes on unobstructed in some parts of the world and in others, it goes on in our living rooms. Or over Zoom as we come to chat to you. Um, If you are looking for stuff to do aside from first watches and brewing beer downstairs, as I have done, a couple of things that are happening this week. Static Vision are hosting an online session on tomorrow night, something you can tune into. And as at the time of recording, the Scandinavian Film Festival screening around the country and intended to launch in Sydney as planned on July 9th this weekend, which we don't know the status. It may be going ahead, maybe it's own, but as of recording, this is when it's going ahead in this episode. We are talking about our four films, three of which are available on streaming. We're going to be talking about Good on Paper, the new Liza Schlesinger film, which is on Netflix, as is Bad Trip, the new film from Eric Andre. As is Bo Burnham Inside, the triple header of Netflix comedy. And Three Summers, which is intending to be in cinemas from this week. We did a giveaway last week, but it should be in cinemas shortly. Yeah, it opened in cinemas shortly before lockdown and it's showing interstate, so. And we also yeah. should mention that as at the time, this only made the news very shortly before we went to start a recording, but uh, Richard Donner, passed away at the age of 91, amazing director who brought us the Lethal Weapon series, Superman 1 and 2, importantly. Um, he made Goonies, he made Scrooged, he made Maverick. The Omen. Very, the Omen, uh, probably my favorite from He's No Maverick, I would say this is the most underrated. Maverick is a lot of fun. Maverick's a great film. He made a lot of really fun, solid blockbusters. I, I have a very soft spot for the first Superman. I've heard the Goonies is actually one of, uh, well, the Australian classics in terms of how many people from Australia kind of remember it fondly of their child, best childhood film. It's- and America. The Goonies yeah. is a beloved film in the Anglosphere, I guess. The Goonies uh, is a great film. Um, Sue Man was the first superhero film I ever saw. Still my parents' favorite superhero film one we used to watch over and over again as kids. Uh, Lethal Weapon, I think, as a Christmas film, as a drama, as a thriller, and as a film about PTSD, is very underrated. And I said Lethal Weapon 2, amazing. Yeah, uh, screw you, Apartheid. He made a lot of great films, a lot of good action. Um, the Omen, it's one of those great examples of a film that many people will try to remake it, but it's you're not going to have a patch on the original. It's so bloody good and eerie. He's an example of a director we don't really see anymore. Like working director who is crafting mainstream entertainment from solid scripts with warm human qualities yeah, he's, like, he's, it, kind of, it, he's kind of like a Spielberg, but not Spielberg, right? Well, he, he worked with Spielberg, Spielberg like and Goonies. Yeah. yeah, he's a he's a, in that same school of Spielberg, of, you know, trying to create good mass entertainment. It's Which very is not sad. dumb, actually, most importantly. Yeah. Not dumb yeah, it, Well, Let's remember when making superhero film was out of the mainstream and the risk 
and establishing an aesthetic that has lasted for decades, but still the first one, and it's even the first two, are still the best Superman movies. There's nothing that's come close to anything as good. There's a lot of genuine love for the, the character and um, a spirit of, I, I guess you could, you could say it's camp, but it's lacking the kind of irony that would be injected into this kind of ultra sincere take today. Really optimistic. I really like it. Me too. Um, all yeah, my, yeah. Every generation of my family loves the two. They don't care for the new ones, but they like they, they like the genomic Superman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he's made an amazing body of work. And he had a great, great long run to 91. Yeah, good run. 91 is, is a good good age, you know. It's, and it's- he went, yeah, he went out with 16 Blocks, which was a well-regarded film and, you know, retired. <laughs> he, he, I've read an interview with him from like 10 years ago and he sounded like he was he was happy to retire. Yeah, that's good. That's right. Well, yeah, yeah. A lot of folks are sharing excerpts and interviews he's done. He was a very blatant, funny person to uh, rep- have a repartee with. Mm. Yes, something I wasn't really aware of. Yet. It's made so many. Yeah, yeah. He was well regarded as a person. The films that I watched before I was really into the films that have pervaded our culture mm. um, and yeah. people worth no less. So, um, I mean, thank you for male filmmakers who were wonderful in their craft and also wonderful human beings. I mean, there's, those do exist. We kind of forget that they're there, that, you know, they're not just all maverick geniuses who treat people horribly. There are people there are lots who of, are nice, yeah. Honestly, there are lots of nice filmmakers. It's just that the people who manage to make it to the top tend to have sociopathic qualities. That's just, that's just the way human <laughs> power structures work. Yeah. But anyway. But here's to one of the good ones, Vale, Richard Donner. Yeah, rest in peace. So the first film we are going to be speaking about is um, the new film from Isaac Good on Paper. Um, it's one of many you can watch streaming online. We're having a bit of a Netflix special this week. Uh, for those, I've got a bunch of new streaming services and set up downstairs. So just been watching stuff. So this is one, if it sounds like a cup of tea, you can get into. Yeah, this and Bad Trip were films that were designed to be released by studios. This one from Universal and Bad Trip from Paramount um, and were sold to Netflix. Which was, I think, a smart bet because this does not have... This is such a stretched film. Look, I've, I've heard the original sketch from which this film is actually inspired from. And the film is basically the whole sketch, which is just, you know, there's nothing more to it. It's, that's the so problem with the film. Tell us the story. So this is the new film from Eliza Schlesinger. And I, it's she wrote it. She wrote it and she stars in it. Yeah, and she's a, she's a very successful podcaster. I knew she was initially because I share a, my roommate shares my Spotify account and I always see recommendations for Eliza Schlesinger asking anything <laughs> come up. So I'm like, wait a minute, I've seen this person before. Oh, uh, yes, Lindsay uh, listens to this person on Spotify. So yep, it is the new, it is a new comedy. Uh, she, so there are elements of this which are autobiographical. She plays a comedian who gets, who's also an aspiring actress who begins a friendship and potentially relationship with a man called Dennis. And the drama and the conflict in the film comes from concerns as to how he has represented himself and to what extent he has been truthful. Um, in tandem with that, there is a story about a celestial character trying to succeed in Hollywood and um, difficulties there and also competition, including with one particular actress who uh, competes for similar roles and is at least in the film space, uh, more, has more notoriety. So notably, it's a guy who she initially sees as a friend because she's not that physically attracted to him, but he's persistent and she eventually gives in and yeah, starts to doubt aspects of the persona that he's presented to her. It's a good story. 
as a, you know, sometimes movies give you that quote, like, like in the title, they give you the easy, the easy <laughs> critic. You know, a, a, a rollicking, here is, a rollicking good on paper. Is, this is a good paper. story. Good yeah. on paper. It's the execution that's lacking. Yes, it's especially the final act. And I like the setup for this film. I, the it's Ryan, sorry, it's a, it's a thing a lot of people have gone through. Yeah, and, and what I think what made it this thing too was that the Ryan Henson character, this isn't your typical meat cute as said, this is a, a situation where it's, it's very honest. I don't feel necessarily attracted to or compatible with this person. And he's playing a very distinct, well-articulated character as distinct from a lot of the other um, characters in this film. It's, it felt like a character where a lot of depth and consideration was put into, right? which is essential because a lot of this film is guessing how much, of the, how much is this guy telling the truth, which is essential mm -hmm. to the conflict and drama. So for me, a big problem was that it was obvious that it was a lie early on. And Virat already mentioned the big problem with this movie, which is that it's very stretched out. Um, you can see where it's going straight away. The character seems to be one step behind where she should be. Um, I understand that she, it's explained in the script that she wants to believe. So she's more forgiving than she should be, but it still stretches credibility when all these things are adding up and, and it, just for the sake of making this feature length, uh, it takes her forever to come to the, the foregone conclusion. Um, and the other problem, it, I think the biggest thing we should mention is that it's not funny. It's just not no, funny. No, I don't think it was funny either. But the problem is like when she tells it as a story, right? When uh, Shazinger is like, you know, discussing this, she adds certain quirks to it. She is able to exaggerate it on the fly to basically get the mood and impulse of the audience. You and obviously that's, can't that's do that in trade. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think the, that this is part of the major problem because there, there's a conflict throughout most of this film is very static and that like a lot of classic 30s, 40s films, everything can be resolved by simply one character communicating asking to another person. Now, as Chris said, they do establish reasons why she doesn't do this uh, to the extent this is acceptable and, and, and real to life. This is a lot of this film. But when you draw it out over a feature land and when, when, the, when the, at the end of the second act, the stop being the point of conflict, that's when the film devolves because mm -hmm. it goes into entirely different territory. I think there are things about this individual scenes that are funny. The scenes that, however, just were supposedly unfunny were pivoting to that type of humor where people just assume that if you speak loudly and vehemently, that people will find you funny. And there's so many scenes like that, including a spectacularly awkward one, which the two main female characters share on a street at night, which is just this humor just compounded and compounded. I felt like it had the, a lot of the problems you see in American comedy writing these days where there's the sense that we need to keep going over the top. Um, and especially with the side characters in this, there's a disconnect in how over the top they are versus this slightly more naturalistic approach of the main drama. I, I think it's very obvious that a stand-up wrote this in a lot of ways. There's the Seinfeld-esque uh, cutaways to her saying some related bit of stand-up but they were always illustrating something that's very clear in the film already. And the movie doesn't, you know, spend so much time showing her doing stand-up that it's like, is this meant to be a fourth wall break where we're showing the, the bit that this originated from? Is this coming from the world of the movie? Do we need it? Why is it there? Um, even early on in the, you know, the time that she meets this guy um, at the an airport, she's introduced speaking on the phone to someone but actually just delivering a bit, like a stand-up bit. Yeah. There's a lot of these weird, awkward, growing pains of turning this from a bit into a film. I didn't mind the Seinfeld-esque intrusions. I agree that, and I'm talking about these first four seasons of Seinfeld here, when he did it, 
it was a little more illustrative of, and it's not so much here's how I'm feeling, but here's a little commentary about society. Uh, mm. I think enough was evident from the drama, though. Having said that, the bits where she did stand up, I did actually quite enjoy. I found sort of that, yeah, she's a good yeah. stand-up comedian. That's the thing, you know. Yeah, that is the thing. These bits are stronger than the film. other material. It's just yeah. like shouldn't be. They just should be cut. <laughs> it's, it's it's strange. Yeah. Um, this is just stuff they throw in there because they think it will be resonant. Um, it's notable that twice in this film they refer to Dennis as Irish Catholic heritage. They uh, pop in there that the Isaac Lester character is Jewish. Um, th these th these mentions are enough that you think, oh, this should have some bearing on the characters else, but it really doesn't. There's just a lot of things that aren't like that just aren't followed through on in terms of character development or comedy. Mm. A lot I, of reads of this movie. I think a major problem of this for me is though there have been worse uh, stand-up to comedy lead transitions, I'm looking at you, Camille Nanjiani, um, I don't think... <laughs> I don't think Eliza... Sorry, sorry, that, was, that was so slight out of, out of the blue that I was just I expecting that. that. I, I can never miss an opportunity to trash that guy's acting skills. But she's good. She's not terrible. But this is a genre that's heavily reliant on charisma. And I don't think she's charming enough to hold it together as a leading lady. On top of that, I don't think Ryan Hansen is charming enough for his part either. I understand that his character is a Freud and there should always be something sus about him, but the sus aspect of him, I think were, were too obvious. Yeah. And he didn't have the charm to make you really believe that you would fall for him and his lies. And all the characters are acting like he does have that charm. So the only person who I thought had the level of charm of the principles to make it work was Margaret Cho. Yeah, she was, she was good. She was good. Um, and you know what's just frustrating? All the meta Hollywood stuff in this, where there's so many films just pivot to this because they feel, okay, it's relatable to us. We write what we know. And it's fine to write what you know, but there's just so many of these out there. Um, there was the great film, um, That's Not Me, from a few years back, the Australian film, which I think did it a little bit better, but there's an example of just being very generic on that front. Um, I've got to note just, I, I, there are bits of the first two acts I enjoyed. The third act, I have to say, spectacularly goes off the rails by both going over the top and moving away from a conflict that is um, resonant. I don't want to ruin what happens, but it's just... The I sense that movies have to go bigger. I, I wish the film had yeah. ended at the second. Just like, more, more stakes, the... more stakes, more stakes. Imagine if this were like 70 minutes long. Yeah. This is the short. This is like, this would be a perfect short. It's just one bit. And that's it. A short feature. Done. Yeah. You know, there's room for that. Yeah. yeah. There are some good scenes. The scene in the club where they're on drugs, that kind of worked more than most drug-induced scenes in movies. Yeah. But this, for some reason, um, I'm going on a mini rant here. For some reason, this movie is shot anamorphically um, in widescreen. Everyone is, yeah. seems to be doing that these days. Like, it's completely cheapened the like anamorphic lenses and widescreen used to be like the really like big budget this is hollywood look so it's created this association that like this means cinema so now you see things that are shot like very blandly like this movie where the the scene you mentioned glenn is the only bit that really stands out to me visually shot in this way i feel like it's it's unnecessary it's devalued the format and the movie would look better if it were shot in you know like to fill your tv but anyway, that, that, no, that, that's the problem not... is people think that just by using different kind of shooting and cinema techniques is going to make up it's for the fact it... that the actual material is somehow, you know, 
make up for the shoddy material that they have essentially. And, and but it, it it's the, also on a visual level a feeling that like you just apply this and it makes up for that you haven't really considered yeah. the visual approach. Like there are the ways that you can plain and and almost yeah, I, sometimes even off in terms I watched, of other characters frame sometimes. Yeah, I watched Marriage Story again uh, last week, and that was a reminder of how you can make two people talking very, very cinematic with the yeah, right that, that escalates blocking and camera placement, yeah. right? There's, there's not that here. Yeah. But that, that's every movie these days. It's The movie is good on paper. That's better. Yeah. <laughs> so that is good on paper. It is on Netflix now. You're listening to Film Fight Club on 2CR with Glenn Falconson, Chris Evans, and Varat Nehru. We'll be talking later about Three Summers and Bo Burnham's Inside, but right now we are talking about Bad Trip, the new film from Eric Andre. It is very similar to a lot of his sketch material, however, and there's a lot of, just it would point a lot of gross out scenes, a lot of shock, um, hidden camera moments, but it is a feature narrative about him meeting a girl, he from here, long, long lost crush, and looking to seek her out by crossing the country on a bad road trip. With a buddy. With a buddy, of course there's a buddy. It's the buddy from Get Out, the buddy you want in every buddy movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lil Ray Howery, I think is his name. Um, He was good. You know, this is my favorite movie of the ones we're reviewing tonight. Um, This is unabashedly dumb. And to my mind, by far the funniest. There's just enough funny bits that went together to make this funny. Like, if you like Eric Andre's sketch material, there's enough in here that you'll enjoy more than a regular feature episode. Yeah. Episode. And there are some bits that are gold. I don't like the narrative of this thing together. I think it's bad. But yeah, it really um, puts in place to hear some crazy stuff we can throw at you. I thought it was an interesting compare and contrast with Borat 2. Uh, in, in looking at how you can create a feature narrative using hidden camera sketch material. Um, Borat 2, I think, was more successful in terms of creating an emotional, engaging narrative. Arguably, Bad Trip isn't really trying to do that, but we can get into that later. Um, but Bad Trip is funnier. The sketches in Bad Trip were more outrageous and in some ways closer to the ones from the first Borat film in creating shock reactions from extreme material in public. And, uh, you know, Speaking before about how uncinematic um, the previous movie was, well, it, it's presented visually like it's meant to be cinematic. This, with its grainy hidden cameras everywhere, and um, is actually very well executed and to me registers as more cinematic because it's so well edited with all these different vantage points and um, all these different reactions being captured. I found this, this quite engaging to watch. Um, and simply in terms of the technique, as opposed to the writing, um, and the response so you're, you're actually going to have emotionally to it. Um, I thought this was actually quite successful as a narrative. It does start to, stre- to stretch and drag because it's so extreme with the comedy all the time, but it's amazing how well it came together considering. Yeah, I mean, uh, the one thing I kind of noticed, and this is the one thing I miss, I guess, after watching Bad Trip, is that I really miss that kind of jackass kind of genre of, of just films where people are a being and, and and second you know uh when something is not shocking for the sake of being shocking they're literally trying to provoke and get a reaction out of people so i think it, mm-hmm. it where, where the whole film is based around the premise rather than that being one element of the film and i think eric andre has the i guess smartness to basically sprinkle that but also have enough of a through line that it doesn't become 
completely a gross out comedy. It's not deliberately meant to gross you out. There are still enough sketches and bits in there to kind of make into a cohesive narrative. So I think balancing the two out, because sometimes it can just be a series of sketches put together, which was Jackass, essentially. It didn't have a overarching narrative, but this one does have that. It, it is, you can still read this as a much as a, you know, road trip buddy comedy as much as anything else as well. It still works like that. I, I, I just think you, I think you're giving the, the narrative a little too much credit. Like, I think even Borat 1 had a stronger through line than this. I think that Borat 2 had a lot more to offer um, by virtue of the form. This, the narrative itself, it, if it hadn't ended, if the narrative hadn't ended the way it did, I would have thought it was a lot worse, but I'm glad for the resolution and the lesson that can be drawn from it. Um, in terms of the staging itself, more than just where the cameras are able to be placed, the intricacy of some of these setups, including one of the bar, where it just is so outrageous and multifaceted and compounding. I'm referring to a scene where he destroys um, yeah. quite a bit of infrastructure and several like this. And there's one scene involving a car crash. There's just stuff Incredible, right? is put on around you. And you can see some quite uh, strong reactions. Obviously in this, especially when there is a fictional through line, there's stuff that's going to be staged and the stuff where it's not entirely clear to what extent it was staged or what extent it was hidden camera. Um, these scenes mostly worked, however, including one scene at the end, which I really enjoyed. It's clear that part of this had to be staged and part of this uh, couldn't have been and part of this was quite strong reactions. And um, in terms of what this narrative had the opportunity, what this had the opportunity to say as a narrative, I think this is the one, it, it takes place a particular location which the film is building towards. And the scene of destruction that ensues is the one piece that actually, of the film that actually gets to a level of social commentary and is enjoyable and um, above and beyond the just gross out sketch sequences mm. of the reason. And I liked the final scene of this film, I'm gonna say best of all. Overwhelmingly, I think this genuinely was hidden camera, genuine reactions. I think, um, based on what it shows you in the end credits and the little bit of uh, critical thinking, you can figure out which parts they've used actors for. Um, but this and Borat too taught, uh, teach you that a lot of the stuff that you'd assume has um, been scripted and pre-planned can actually be elicited with the right person from the general public. And like that movie, the, the subtext that comes out is how nice most people really are. Everyone rises to the occasion in this and are, are genuinely helpful and kind to these crazy people who seem to be in extreme distress who cross their paths. I love the opening. This isn't a spoiler because it's the first five minutes, but I love the opening scene. Yeah, it's so funny. I mean, I, I, I saw this girl from high school that I love. So, so dumb. It's hilarious. Get ripped off and the public's like, oh my God, how do I help this guy? He's kind of in my closet. This girl he has a crush on Haskell, this pretty girl. Yeah. What am I going to do? How do I, oh, I'm going I'm to jump in here. I reminded of that sketch from Hamish Nandy that went viral where they got a random guy to be their reference for a job interview. And the guy called up and he said, oh yeah, Andy, top, top bloke. There's a few sequences like that, which just are funny and mm. awkward, but I speak to this and people. And that's mm. something that's affirming that I love about this movie. Like I've, I've said, it is very, very dumb. Uh, and at a certain point, that's exhausting. Oh, yeah, it's completely stupid by design. At a certain point, that's kind of exhausting. And they've clearly tried to put their cards on the table. Um, and there's a heavy sense of irony where they're saying, we don't really care um, if you invest in this story or not. But to an extent, that's a problem when you still have to watch a 90-minute film. Like there's a, a point where it's so stupid and so ironic that it, it, it's, I'd rather almost like just 
cut the narrative parts and just get straight to the comedy. Um, watching it made me think about the strange point we're at in popular culture, because the narrative here is is making fun of tropes from, uh, you know, buddy movies, road trip movies, Disney type uh, mu movie musicals. But I thought about how it's so hard to move outside of um, the paradigms and formulas for movies that get funded in the difficult marketplace that we're in today, that you can make a movie that, that says, uh, look at all these cliches, aren't they stupid? But you can't make something that genuinely exists outside of those paradigms and shows you something funny and shocking and weird and new. Like this, this kind yeah, of like self-criticism is the only thing you can do. But that, that's because you still have to abide to the formula, you know, even if you're saying, ah, isn't it dumb? Because anything that is trying to be anti-narrative, even today, has to be relatable to some extent. So even, even your subjects that you're taking aim at are somewhat, you know, part of popular culture. Even you can't sort of twist it around and really take. So even the things you're saying about Disney or, you know, corporate culture are things that are kind mm -hmm. of rehashed. You're not really going dark or you're not really going in places where it can actually make people uncomfortable because that might alienate people as well. So it, 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 I don't know. Is, is anything counterculture I'm, these days? I'm not even, well, yeah, what is counterculture in, in the world we have today? But it's not even, I'm not even asking for, you know, anti-narrative, though I guess something like Jackass really is that, um, but just yeah. a less conventional narrative as opposed to we made something super conventional while saying, haha, aren't these conventions stupid? You know what I mean? It's like we can't, you cannot live outside the box anymore. So that is bad trip. On that depressing note, <laughs> if that's if, if the sketch, but it was a good trip for us. It's a very good trip. It's funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny. It's it's disposable. It's designed to be disposable, and so it's you're funny. listening to Film Fight Club on Two CR. And the last five minutes, we want to cover a new film that is in cinemas now. Will be in cinemas shortly. Which two? Which is Three Summers. It is a film out of Brazil. We did a giveaway for it last week, and broadly speaking, as discussed. It centers on a person who manages a household who is from a lower socioeconomic strata, manages a household for a much a large, much wealthier family with whom she has varying relationships and whom are some of whom it appears may very well be extremely corrupt. And um, now this has some um, resonance right now, given what's going on in Brazil, certainly just today as of recording, there was a corruption probe announced there, and it is a major um, issue internally in the country and a point of major discussion. This film, however, we should note that it's a drama with comedic elements. I think it has been billed as comedy. It's the least comedic on this episode, for sure. It does go some way into interrogating how different social stratas are treated in Brazil, um, how these groups interact. There is, I'd say, one really heartwarming relationship between the main character and another member of the family, but the film, I think, jumps around in time a lot narratively and thematically and trying to make the points that intends to make. Yeah, it, it's a very much a slice of life, um, but the through line is a little bit all over the place. Uh, last week when we were talking about it off episode, Virat used the word haphazard, and I think that sums it up. Like, I, I don't think the point it's trying to create emerges that much, and I don't think the juxtaposition of the events it shows is, is that profound. Um, and I'd basically say that to this point, there's a major revelation about the main character that emerges later in the narrative. Yeah. There's a lot of thing that is treated, treated like a twist, but doesn't 
dramatically serve as a twist. It's information that, okay, it's shocking, but for the purposes of empathizing with the character, knowing the circumstance and being relevant to the narrative, it should have been much earlier in the film. Every A lot of films now have to have a twist and always twist peculiar. You don't have to have a shocking revelation. You just need to reveal information about a character that is relevant to um, engage with them at a relevant point in the story. This happens two thirds of the way into the story when it should have happened in the first act. It's the end of second act twist and it shouldn't have functioned as such. Mm. The opening act of this film is the only one that features a lot of action and um, people coming and going. It's much busier than the quiet um, next two summers that the film shows us. And it really struck me watching this first bit oh, that- Clear on. Yeah, I, but it really struck me watching this first part that this must have been a really rushed production because some of the camera work is really not up to par. Yeah, um, the values aren't especially great. Yeah, the, the, like um, what I'm talking about in, in this first section, um, I, I understand there's a difficulty in uh, filming dynamic action. Um, but again, that's what makes me think that it, it was rushed that when there's dynamic action, suddenly the framing, et cetera, is not as good as it used to be. There's moments where um, in this handheld camera um, for five, 10 seconds, you're just looking at people's shoulders. Like you can't see the eyes or the faces. Um, and to me, that's just distracting. That doesn't heighten the sense of reality. That's just like, was the cameraman not able to be nimble enough to reframe a little bit? Um, it, yeah, it, it brought the film down a little bit. It might sound like a nitpick, but it, it's actually quite annoying <laughs> to watch that kind of sloppy camera work in a professional film. So that is three summers. I, I, look, I, I found the, the main character charming. I, I, she is the best thing about the film. She's very warm and she, the, I really like the actress. And the actress, I, I, I mentioned that the actress was great, but she was the be, absolutely the best thing about it. I really like the actress in Bad Trip as well. And on that note, that I forgot to mention in the review, Eric Andre is really charming and funny, right? So Tiffany Haddish, hilarious. Not just a meme. She's good in this. Um, I'm not generally a fan of hers, but this is one of my favorite performance from her. This was perfect for her. The over-the-top brashness was fitting. So you can catch Bad Trip on Netflix alongside Good on Paper, and we'll be chatting about Bo Burnham's Inside. Also on Netflix. Healing the world with comedy Making a literal difference metaphorically A Jew walks into a bar I've saved him a seat That's healing the world with comedy And we're back on the Film Fight Club podcast talking all things Bo Burnham's Inside. I kept getting the title wrong. It's not Bo Burnham's Inside or Bob Burnham's Inside. It's Bo Burnham's Inside. Well, inside Bo Burnham. Oh, so it's, not a, it's not Bo Burnham's Insides because that would be interest, more interesting than what I actually thought. That's what I've been calling it for a while, but um, that's not actually what it's called. The title is inherently funny, which he's a comedian. Cool. Like yeah, the title is the funniest thing about the whole thing. That's how I'm. Uh, I don't think. I don't think Bob Burnham inside. Haha. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> look, this has been overwhelmingly praised. That's the context for a lot of the things we're going to discuss. I suspect. Um, th it is this is, although it functions and is produced as a feature film. Which that's right. We I, I suggested we talk about this on the show, despite it being a stand-up special, which we don't usually cover. Partly because of the overwhelming response. Uh, to give you an, an idea, on Metacritic, this is the highest rated comedy special or TV special ever, right? This this is universally Wait, beloved. Really? Ever. This is number one. Yeah. What? Right? What now now, now you're going to feel what out of touch. What's wrong with people? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll, we'll get into that. Um, but also watching it, one of the thoughts I had, which I then reading what other people had to say and feeling increasingly despondent and out of touch as I did, um, is that this sort of is a film, right? Like if, you, if you're a bit freeform in, in terms of what you think about as film as you should be, um, yeah. this is more of a film than it is a comedy special. It's made up of performance bits, which are usually music videos. Yeah. Um, but it, it's a bit free in the structure where he puts whatever he wants in. Um, and so in, in, in that respect, it's more of a documentary film hybrid. And importantly, it's filmed, of course, of a year of he's being, as the title suggests, inside during the COVID, due to the COVID-19 pandemic in the United States. Yeah. They just filmed in the Cubist of Humorini's house. Yeah, we'll get into this. It's filmed in his guest house, but we can discuss oh. that later on. So at, before we get into the, just the actual things that's in it, just the, I, the it's inside before we get inside. What are the funniest things in the film? I think it might've been incidental. Tough just, crowd. <laughs> I'm almost as unfunny as Bill Burnham. Which is a good thing because Bill Burnham is not funny at all. It's definitely funny in the name. I, I won't I won't go quite that far, but when he yeah. walked into the room, the guy's six foot five, he had a stoop gun under the door. People who are six foot five, like God, you look funny. You should yeah, do yeah. more with that. If you're six foot five, do more with the comedy. Um, the he, he did comment about like, am I really tall or is the is the roof really low at one point? What are, what are the better scenes of Promising Young Woman is the one where in the um, pharmacy where it's just, oh God, you really are a giant. And hmm. you, the only thing where he uses his height, he could have used it more, but no, he used He, he was voice. better in Promising Young Woman than he was in this entire thing. Oh yeah, yeah but he had a director for that. So. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah, true. It's it's hard to know where to start with this film, honestly. There's a lot to unpack. But so maybe because I'm going to be mostly negative on this, I should. You can do it because like my problem it. with this is and it's the reason why I'm not able to articulate much is that I didn't connect with 99% of the thing and I didn't find mm. any of it funny. I just found as if right. I was watching, you know, it was so bland to me. It was very hard right, to engage. Right. So I'm looking to I you to spark some discussion topics i kind of liked i kind of liked it on a i, I watched it again because i had a, a super negative response the first time around um the, the reason why i prefaced this talking about how beloved this is already uh, the rapturous reception is because that informed where i came from um i watched it again because i disliked it so much the first time around um that i, I felt like i should give it a, a better shot and when i say i i didn't i don't like it overall i wouldn't recommend it but when i say i kind of liked it there are things about it that I really admire. Um, it's just artistically what it's doing that I don't really like, which <laughs> at the end of the day is is the core, right? Um, okay. Yeah, there, there are individual scenes I feel that worked really well. Um, there's one where he's clearly uh, harboring on the meta aspect of it where we see him doing a video commentary himself, doing a video commentary himself. This is the one um, piece of commentary on the current state of social media that I liked. The problem I had with a lot of this film is that so much of the comedy is, I think, elitist and condescending. A lot of it is taking pot shots at people who are hustling on YouTube. Um, I don't like reaction videos, but if it gets you clicks and it gets you income, then people want to watch it, it's fine by me. It's pretty rough for a guy who was in Comedy Central at 18, who's in movies, who gets his own Netflix special, who's as successful as he is, to have a go at people who are generating this sort of material and cases content. 
I mean, good for them. I mean, they're doing the hard yards like you did. Um, you may be beyond that now, whether it be artistically or for um, what you feel you can otherwise give to this space. But it's pretty cheap, I think, to take a lot of the shots that he did in this movie. And I don't like cheap shots. And those you're right. I did. Yeah, you're right that there's a kind of smugness and a simultaneous hyper self-awareness and lack of self-awareness informing this thing. But to talk about what I liked about it, I like the free formness. I like the free thinking and um, he's responded to constraints and tried to come up with a new answer to what a comedy special is supposed to be. I like the idea of um, making a long comedy special that can incorporate serious bits um, and can incorporate sketches of various forms and it, it has its a narrative of sorts without being too tied to narrative. And I, I have to give him props as a DIY filmmaker, right? Um, he uh, he had no assistance working on this. It does have a professional color grade, which might explain how the footage looks so good, but he filmed himself, he edited himself. Um, he's exception. he missed focus a few times, but I'll forgive him. He's exceptionally good at- Especially at, in dark environments, to his credit. Yeah, he's exceptionally good at filming himself. Um, that it's not an easy thing to do, you know, like the, to compose these shots, etc. We've got to the crux of the problem with this as comedy already, right? Which is, it's not that funny. Yeah, a lot of people have praised it, uh, despite that, saying I didn't find it that funny, but I, you know, connected to it emotionally, artistically, or whatever. I, I didn't so much, but I can see that. But I don't like the trend where we devalue comedy. Uh, I think comedy is amazing. I think comedy is important and comedy is valuable. Um, and the last time that a stand-up special had this kind of crossover power and impact was Hannah Gadsby's Nanette, which was very, yeah. very serious. Um, and, and also about, very, very unfunny. But okay, yeah. Yeah, and also which very, also very Which also everyone unfunny. seemed to have loved. Again. Right, right. Um, they're both about the person's mental state. I think it, um, I'm kind of reviewing the reception as opposed to the actual work here, but I don't like the trend that like it's something is presented as being a breakthrough for comedy when it stops being comedy. It suggests that comedy is inherently lesser. But, so, also, but also the other problem I have with it is where I feel like a lot of this, same thing with Hannah Gatsby, same thing with here. The thing is uh, there is less of an expectation to develop humor or elicit humor from the audience and just by plain observation or, or the idea that you've somehow, uh, you know, come to an epiphany throughout your, your, you know, duration of your special, that merits uh, importance rather than the actual thing being funny in itself. I didn't find hmm. much of Hannah Gatsby's and that funny, but it was praised for being, you know, some coming from an epiphany. Being real. Of epiphany. Yeah, being real. That it had some kind of profound realizations about life. Mm -hmm. I can listen to a philosophy podcast for that. Like, honestly, why would I want to go to a comedy special? Yes, well, but if the comedy special does both, like, let's say, you know, George well, Collins. It's funny, it's but appropriate. It funny to begin with. Um, it's appropriate. Yeah, Colin's a great example. Colin, while in his late career stuff, was hilarious while being sobering at the same time. Yeah, exactly. He but he had to be that hilarious kind of, to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. He mastered that kind of cynicism and irony that... Bo Burnham comes across as smug when he presents. Yeah. I think most of the time. As to whether it's funny, the first few songs 
had a few bits where I smiled. It never made me laugh, but there's a few bits where I said, oh, okay, yeah, you know, that's clever. I'll pay that. The music video bits, because they were, uh, I felt more rehearsed, uh, definitely felt funnier because I guess they were, you know, they practice a lot more. The more DIY stuff where, where he's basically, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I do, I agree with you. I appreciate the filmmaking, but because it never comes together as anything coherent or anything the, the fast. Things, the, the things that me, for me were entertaining were, and it was the more core to the narrative of the film where it was just relatable. The, where it was built, lived, felt lived in over time was just him commentating that he feels alone. He feels isolated like we all do. The, the bits that were just about showing the progress of how you feel over the course of a pandemic and the mindset that, engender, that engenders in you um, was, was good for me. It was I, I found uh, uh, endearing and I found important but i think it was also good just to see this from the perspective of someone who is well well off than most of us because it's nice to yes this does this is relatable this affects everyone and there's a universalism to that which i like more than the other um things that otherwise dominated and overwhelmed this film okay you've opened a couple of kinds of, of worms to me again i have so much to say about this this movie that i, I struggle to know where to start but before we do that when you were saying before about like the, the the mingling of like the the comedy with the serious, it's kind and the the surprise of that and how people respond so well to that. It's appropriate that this guy's main form is musical comedy, right? Because most of the time, um, if I can be cruel, musical comedy is not very funny, but it gets its appeal from the shock of like, oh, this is musical, but so I, I, I'm not expecting to hear a joke, and oh, that, that was kind of a, an okay joke. But I'm surprised because I'm hearing it in a song form. So haha, it's the same trick that he's pulling with the serious bits in this. It's like, oh, I thought I was watching a comedy special, but now now I'm going to cry because Bo Burnham is talking about how sad he is. <laughs> but the stuff that that you were talking about, Glenn, I find to be a very mixed bag. This like the the problem of this movie is the problem of self awareness, and are you immune from committing a crime artistically because you say up front that you're doing it and show that you're self-aware? Are you satirizing, for example, like the self-involvement of social media or are you just making a movie that reflects that? Like th- this movie is most is a, very much about social media and criticizing the, play, the ways that social media molds the mind. But I feel like he is reflecting a lot of those same things. I, I thought it was a very narcissistic film in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, I think with this level of irony, it's like, it's what I call the Muppets rule. The, the Muppets didn't matter back in the eighties before everyone was doing it, it was entertaining. Now everyone's doing it and you go back and watch the Muppets and it's not as funny to no fault of their own. And people rely on this. It seems to have a ridiculous shelf life, self-awareness, but- The golden age of postmodernism in the eighties. It's, it's different not, now. It's not. As funny when you see it over and over again, like anything else. And comedy is the sense of new and not being aware of what you're about to hear and see. On the matter of social media, I think there's a lot of general shots he takes at social media. I, I remember the one, there's the one scene where he's talking about sexting with someone, which is quite funny, but it's a pretty standard sketch in that with this, he in the in the ever in with discussing the matter of the pandemic. He has a real opportunity now to talk about how we relate to comment to social media at the moment, how we're more reliant on it, how we're more absorbed in it. And the commentary that he has regarding social media 
is very generalized pre-pandemic nature. I would have loved to deep dive into this, given this is statedly a comedy special about the pandemic into how we relate to social media now as opposed to a year ago. And none mm. of that was there. I think there's a lack of self-awareness in not delivering that core thing, which the film otherwise ports to do. I think you're totally right that in general, he doesn't have any kind of interesting insights. All of these jokes, I feel like I've heard before. Maybe not to the extent he gets into them and like the white woman's Instagram thing or whatever, but all of it's kind of familiar, just being presented with catchy songs. But I was expecting some kind of deeper level of insight with the way that, that people are really praising him as a brilliant mind. Uh, yeah, yeah, the sexting, sexting thing's a good example. It, it's jokes that have been played out. Yeah, I think my problem with this one uh, was, I mean, uh, Glenn was mentioning about how he related to a lot of the pandemic stuff and how it's affecting Will Burnham. The problem is I had a completely negative reaction to that. And the reason why that was, because I felt here's someone who is entitled, who is privileged, and he's for the first time realizing what inconvenience feels like, which all of us are feeling. So I, instead of feeling like, oh, we're all in this together, I kind of felt like, oh, good on you. You should be feeling inconvenience. It is very much, and you, and the fact that he's somehow realizing something so basic, that inconvenience is something that can be felt across the spectrum was hmm. kind of made me feel annoyed. I was like, oh, well, good on you. Maybe then you should be inconvenienced. Because well, Glenn, raised a good, Glenn raised a good point earlier, which is that, um, you know, you, you still suffer if you're rich or privileged, but it's a bit more complicated than that. All right. I, I disagree. I think that I, I don't begrudge him expressing that he feels isolated given however rich and famous you are, anyone can and does routinely feel isolated. I don't have a problem with that at all. Um, as regards the number, the white road Instagram number, I'm glad it was raised. And so just to note that particular song would be a lot funnier if a lot of other comedians, any number had otherwise sung it. But separate, I, I do think it is quite a funny song, but I do think that it is cheap to the extent that the comedy special again purports to give a empathetic view as to what life is like in this sort of environment. And I think if it had had the maturity to acknowledge that these, uh, these white, quote unquote, whitewood Instagram feeds are as much about as any other Instagram feed, people reaching out for support or for an engagement or for a sense of community and togetherness. So I think it's on one hand, he's saying, we're, you're not alone because we're all in the situation. And then, oh, here's me taking a shot at someone who is looking to reach out and be part of a community in social media. So it was funny, but it was just another, another cheap shot among many in this film, which lessened and because he's pointing out that people follow a lot of performative cliches, but that's exactly what he's doing himself with this film. You know, this movie is like so is just like social media. It's just as fake and rehearsed while presenting a, a false reality. Um, and you could say that the, he's presenting some level of awareness of that within the narrative, but I don't know that it's enough. Again, like I said, it's like, does self-awareness exonerate you? But with regard to his commentary on the pandemic, um, the, the one bit in this movie that I probably like the most is the song near the end about that funny feeling, which is not going for comedy at all. For me, that one actually hit because it, one, wasn't about himself or about making fun of other people. It went more abstract. And in doing that, I think actually became relatable in, you know, not quite pinning down what he's talking about, but talking about the general sense that the world is falling apart and we have nothing we can do. Um, yeah, I mean, so I, I really liked that, but that's yeah. one of the only times that he found a new way 
of addressing a thing everyone's feeling. The rest of the time, as we've been saying, it felt way too familiar. I agree, because like for most of this film, he employs one or two of these things. Either he's self-deprecating or he's punching down. So in this one, especially in this last segment where he's going more abstract, he finally tries a third way. And which is why, because you're so used to people being self-deprecating, which is now done to death in comedy. So it kind of feels like just stop doing it. You know, whenever I see a male comedian being self-deprecating on stage, I just like go through the motions and I don't find it funny anymore. It's either that or he's just punching down other people when he's doing the same thing. So that's hypocritical to say the least. But in this one, when he's actually trying to be abstract, I feel he stumbles onto something actually real and uh, honest about himself. So when he's not mm-hmm. trying to go for a revelation is when he's actually revealing more about himself. But I think, I wish there was more of that where it was not geared up to like, oh, here's this profound mm-hmm. thing I've realized about life or about myself through this pandemic. It was more just, hey, here's what my life is now. And, you know, sometimes not revealing, you can reveal mm-hmm. more about yourself than actually trying to come to an actual realization. That's how I feel. Anyway. And part of the problem there is that if, if we're talking about him as a character and his development and the comedy's development, I know this takes place essentially over the course of several months at least, but there's no real sense of time and context of time developing and moving along. And I know that in itself is a commentary on how time can become static, but if we wanted to see, if you wanted to reflect how people can grow throughout this, then we need to be very clear what the timeline and sense of development was and there really wasn't any sense of that because the cinematography the staging um it's i know it's by design static but we don't get a clear sense of um time and energy elapsing and he seems to have to, he comments on the beard but it seems to be basically the same length for the whole thing there was an opportunity oh, yeah. there to really let his beard grow and, and give us a sense of time but maybe if he did that he would have revealed that it isn't as real as he's presenting it as being. He's, he's you know, he, I reckon he's gone back and redone earlier bits, probably keeping the beard maintained at, the, at a regular level is a nice way of disguising that, right? I don't know. I'm just spitballing and guessing. Yeah, you know, but, but like, yeah, it's, okay. it is what it is. Yeah. Talking about his smugness and getting into the, the thorny issue of privilege here. Yeah. Um, let me say up front that I am usually the last person to criticize somebody for uh, being too privileged. But in this special and with this subject matter, I found it difficult to avoid. Um, Right up front, you get the sense that he's struggling with the current social climate and how to present his comedy now. Um, So he spends a lot of time advertising his wokeness. Like I feel like the first four or five segments, he keeps mentioning that he's white uh, like, is he ashamed of that? Or yeah. I, I don't think he's ashamed of that. But it's like, do I need to acknowledge my privilege? Do I need to acknowledge I'm a, I'm a white guy? To me, the answer is no. And it's kind of annoying to hear the same points about like how, you know, white people were so privileged keep coming up. But, you know, as you said, it is what it is. But when he does that, it, to me, draws attention to that he might be aware that some of the things he's doing here are a little bit much from someone in his position of privilege. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that he's aware of the fact that he is very privileged. Hmm. But I, my problem is just acknowledging that doesn't mean that you can then go with the very same bits as if yeah. that, that like by saying, oh, by the way, I, I am this. So if, if somebody's offended, you know, I've just told you I'm white. I'm sorry. Yeah. I can't help it. 
that's that's what I mean about the that like does um does it addressing it does being self-aware exonerate you from any kind of criticism on that level? When I talk about his privilege, I know that everyone suffered in the pandemic. I know that everyone suffers with isolation to some um, extent, and, and that he's a person who has um, a history of some poor mental health conditions, and that's real, and that can be valid art. But when making a, a thing about how, I guess this is more abstract, and he doesn't talk so much about the tangible real world details, but when you think about, for example, how bad things are in Peru right now, or in India, um, it's it's a little strange, right? From it, it, to watch it, this it, coming from a guy relative. in LA. Yeah, it's relative, right? Everything is relative. Everything is or, relative. I know. I know that doesn't mean his suffering doesn't exist, but it's almost like that's the thing you should have acknowledged instead of saying, "Ha ha, I'm white. Maybe we're supposed to shut up." But I'm going to tell jokes now. You know. I don't know. It's just it's a, it's an interesting dilemma, right? I know, but the thing is, I think self awareness gives you the opportunity to actually refine and find a new way to actually, you know, go for humor. And the problem mm. is that he doesn't He's do so that. self-aware, he but still, not. He still makes the same jokes that he would have otherwise, but he just added a caveat by saying that, oh, by the way, guys, I'm white, so, and I'm still going to make the same jokes. If by saying I'm white, and then he goes on to actually uh, say that I'm not going to be making the same jokes I was going to be making, let's say, a year ago. He does. Or like, you know, yeah. whatever and I've rewritten some of my stuff, then that would be interesting because he's admitting to something more real about his own process, about his own, to, about checking his own privilege. Just to, by me, there's something, that, to me, there's something more annoying going on okay. early on, which is that he's advertising his wokeness. He's spending a lot of time in that, like with that means of production puppet song. He's, but he's trying that, to establish- what's like, uh, you know, woke fuckboy culture has become? Where like the, yeah. the, 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 what it's sort of evolved into is that the more woke you are, the more you sort of you are in with the crowd and you have a more chance of being like, oh, the more likable you present yourself to be, that's the new fuckboy. It's a likable fuckboy, essentially. Well, it's weirdly similar to his role in Promising Young Woman, right? <laughs> At the yeah. outset. Yeah, because he spends all this time trying to establish that I'm one of the good guys. So at the beginning, yeah. I get to have a song that shows that I'm a good Marxist. And I, I acknowledge that I'm white and da 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 da. Like he's spending so much time trying to show you, don't worry if you follow Twitter every day, I have the same opinions of, as you. And like we've said with how a lot of his material isn't fresh in terms of comedy, that's also true in terms of social commentary. The whole thing is presenting the same kind of opinions that you read about, everyone's been reading about for the last year on Buzzfeed and, and social kind media. Kind of feels like a tired Jezebel article sometimes. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, it's it's very standard flat kind of content. Or, or if you're gonna go slate, if you want to be more intellectual about it, you know you you know your publications. They're they're you know the usuals mm -hmm. wherever people get their information from or opinions from. Can I talk about my my biggest problem with this movie? I sort of oh we haven't got to that yet. Okay, all right. Oh sure. yeah. Okay. Right. It's, okay. It's the inherent narcissism of of the the concept, right? Like at the outset, and here's something everyone's spoken about. Um, I, I mentioned how talented he is, right? With like the, the, with doing the lighting, filming it, filming himself, um, all these songs, et cetera, right? But he does so much to draw attention to that. You don't need to show all these scenes of, here's me setting up the lights. You could say all that is to establish the kind of, um, the, the reality of I'm making this alone in a room 
But why do you, do you need do you to think do that? You're doing that to show off? Other than to boast. Yeah, I feel like it, it's and um, that it's narcissistic for me on two fronts. Yeah, the first is that show offy level where rather than like just do the amazing thing, he he needs to you to know, hey guys, look, I'm doing this. I I can do this. Here's yeah. the shot of me fixing the light again. The second is the area where it kind of crosses over with social media, which is the the kind of like, hey, look, I'm sad stuff. To me, this is kind of like social media writ large, where it, it's it's like you just advertise, I am feeling this now. Oh yeah, I mean, um, it happens on Twitter all the time. I, I get what you mean. I mean, they're, 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 I mean, you basically you collect tears from people as as a way of validation. But you just yeah. say, look, I'm sad, and the people collectively go and give you validation. That's it. Oh my god! I watched look another. How bad you are, kind of, you know. Yeah, yeah. I watched another. Okay, hold on a second. For the purposes of um, tw uh, Twitter discourse and a lot of other social forums, I appreciate there is some distinction as to how it is framed here. There is a difference between um, validation and affirmation. And I think that a lot of people reach out in these forums as discussed earlier. I think that's quite how this has been framed or how it is. Right, but we, ex so we expect... But I think a, a more healthy dynamic does come across in other forums. I, we expect different, or at least we have until maybe recently, expected something different from our art than we get from social media, though. I, I recently watched a, a highly acclaimed short film, which I thought was doing a very similar thing, where it's just like presenting, is my sadness, as opposed to filtering it through devices in order to reach out and connect with people. I feel like this leans more into just the, here's a self-portrait of me being sad. This will make you sad a lot of the time, as opposed, like a lot of the songs are just going for comedy. Not many of the songs really address, it. like I, I have empathy for this guy on a human level, but he, what he does cinematically is not doing much to actually connect me to him. It's just advertising and broadcasting, you know, look at me. I am sad. Yeah, it's it's but, the kind of sad boy behavior that you kind of like. He's like my two a.m. tweet that nobody's going to respond to. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Away I, and I, I can't think see. that's mean. I'm sorry, sad boy behavior. It's okay for this guy to reach out. I don't. I, I as to the extent that this itself is a form of him doing that. Um, I grant him that. I, I take no issue with it. It doesn't mean we have to watch it or have to <laughs> We can criticize it, but if you- I think it's worth criticizing as well, art. I think I'm it's limited. Criticizing. I've been spending half an hour at least criticizing it. But I think there's the performative I, I, sad I, aspects of it are worth criticizing. There's to label him as such, risk falling into the trap of what element this is itself perpetuating. I don't have a problem with him articulating how people are sad I, or how people can relate to this pandemic i do think that the, the, the times when he otherwise uses that as a forum for taking cheap shots at other groups or individuals or classes that exception well i i do criticize him for the the using it as a forum for his own sadness or whatever one because like i said i feel like it's artistically limited that in the past prior to social media um, validating a lot of these behaviors, artists would do more to filter their emotional response through something to make it more universal. You know, like that's part of the process of art. The basic like problem is it's just performative. I feel it's, it's super- I was gonna get to that, yeah. yeah. Super performative, that's it. Um, but yeah, like art is, or here we go, art is this, but like- <laughs> 
um, make a reaction video criticizing myself with a reaction video with a reaction video. Yeah. Both on him. I mean, he's, um, he's not any different to any other social media. Yeah, right, essentially. But yeah, to me, it's limited as art versus like finding means to speak to everyone instead of just saying like, oh, well, I'm feeling this. I'll turn the camera and present. I am feeling this. But where it gets weird is the performativity of it. There's an, a scene later in the movie where um, we see a shot where he's um, talking about, he, you know, he, he's, uh, he starts doing a take and then he, he breaks down during it and he walks yeah. in, he sort of he, I uh, shoves that. the equipment as he walks out of the shot. I hated it too, but the problem with it for me is I'm too cynical for this. A lot of people online watched this thing and were like, wow, I, I'm really, I'm worried for him. Like a lot of his fans were like, I'm worried for this guy. Is he doing okay? All that sort of thing. Whereas when I look at that shot, I say, um, okay, so sometimes he puts the camera wide and uses a digital zoom, but if he were ever planning to do that with that, this shot, he would have moved to the lights out of the way. Clearly he's, um, you know, so that he could have had that clean zoom out like he uses at other points in the movie. Clearly with this shot, he wanted a removed shot framing this guy from a distance, framing him from a distance so that he could walk by the camera shoving the stuff so that he, you know, we, you have like, instead of an intimate close up, you've got like, the. This, you've got the sad shot, the guy had to remove, surrounded by all this clutter. And, and, um, and, and I kind of see your point because it, it makes sense because it, he's the one doing the lighting, he's the one doing the camera setup. So it kind of feels it, like he's always aware of where the camera is and he's right. almost performing for the camera almost every time. He is, he is. Now the now this gets to um, where the, the movie is going to succeed or fail for everyone, which is how much does it matter that it's fake? For me, it's distracting because like I said, it's like, what is this actually serving other than just like narcissism of like, here's a portrait of how sad I am, which I rehearsed a million times, uh, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, like, bang on, bang on, I agree. I totally agree. Like, here's a shot of me being unable to complete the take and having to storm out, which I decided would be a cool shot to do in advance. So I yeah. framed it this way with the gear in the way and I set the camera up here. Um, it's, so, also, it's also it's also the problem, uh, and we're talking about social media, but this is also the problem of social media to begin with, where you're mining mm. sadness for content. You're mining, right. you're mining emotional, mm. genuine emotional appeal and genuine emotional reaction for likes or for, for you know, for retweets right. or whatever. So I, I, I can Everything see what the... Commercialized and commodified in the end, even emotions. <laughs> I can see the, the response to what I'm saying which is it doesn't matter that it's fake because as we said at the outset, it's a film, but what is the value of it as a film? It, it gets into strange places because it's presented like so much of this, it's like it's a really raw confessional. Like it's meant to show you how bad things are for Bo Burnham. The, the question is, does it matter that it's fake? There's always a level of artifice in stand-up comedy and in on-stage performances, there's always a, le a level of filtering a genuine emotion. Again, as I was saying, art should do into a form that other people can connect with. But some of the ways that Bo Burnham is doing that here are kind of skeezy to me. Okay, the, okay the extent I, I don't think I don't think it's only about being fake. I would be okay with the fact if it's just been about something being artificial or the artifice of it. That's not what bothers me. What bothers me is the fact it is using that artificialness to deliberately mine his sadness for content. It is it is very much that self awareness is now being weaponized in a way that is now commercialized 
for for emotional content. It's like give me your like give me all your sadness. Yeah, You've got an affirmation. People doing that on social media. Yeah, there's a difference between overutilizing self-awareness and over and what has been stated just now as quote unquote overutilizing an emotional state. I didn't issue with him going into detail as to why he feels sad or isolated. Neither. But it's the manner. It's but the issue, the issue look, when it comes to the matter of overutilizing self-awareness, I don't think it's a matter of poor taste as much as a matter of poor judgment, just because we've seen it done so, so many times before. To the point of him reckoning with his emotional state and sadness, I think that can be good. I think that can be relatable, but I think it's only engaging to the extent the form is good. And the form here is just mostly boring. And because it is so, so statedly self-aware, it just stops being interesting because for the reasons we've said, it's not entertaining to hear someone say again and again and again, we're self-aware, even if it is about a subject matter that is important. Hmm. Not just that, okay. I feel it's morally problematic if I have someone who I know, yes, they are sad, but they're deliberately drawing from the same well. So they're not that sad because they're self-aware enough to realize that they're drawing from that well and then going back to it Absolutely. and somehow then expect me to somehow react a certain way. Okay. They're manipulating why you, in my why reaction. Should you, why should you not be sad if you're self-aware? You can be incredibly self-aware and just be in a very negative state they're absolutely not exclusive. No, and that, that's fine but if you go back to that but they're placing deliberate placing a camera angle than everything else you're not that sad you're doing it in a very aware state of like hey mm. let me i know this is what sells so i'm going to use that to yeah manipulate okay my i'm going to get into that to get i'm going to get into reaction, that to get a specific yeah. reaction that's what i don't like yeah 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 okay i want to i want to i don't know if you guys know to the extent to which this is fake so i want to throw a few things out there yeah. like i said earlier he doesn't live here, right? This is his guest house. He presents stuff in the movie to suggest that he's living here, like showing himself sleeping on the bed there, right? He's not really alone. He lives with Lorene Stefaria. She directed Hustlers and Sleep and Seeking a Friend for the End of the World, right? Just across the garden that you see at the end of the movie. He's not sleeping alone, doing it rough. He has someone to hold at nighttime, okay? That, I mean, that's that's the big thing. That, but like, once you know that, the whole thing's kind of busted open, right? Right. You could say that does it doesn't matter. This is what you've been demanding earlier, Chris, um, an artistic filtration um, to depict his mental state in non non literal terms. But I challenge the value of it as art. The character is so conflated with Bo Burnham, right? Like he talks about his anxiety attacks, which is real. He talks about a lot of things that are real. So it's a character that's called Bo Burnham, who's very much like Bo Burnham in all ways, being presented in a form that's like a raw confessional, but designed to make you feel more sorry for him. Why is that an artistically good goal? Okay. I What's the value of that? A lot of the, a lot of the reasons that I've discussed earlier, I don't especially like this and would recommend it, but I think I don't agree with that reading and criticism for the reason that even if someone is not actually isolated that they live with someone have a, by the sounds of it a significant other i didn't know they were, he was in a relationship with this person or otherwise lived with them um i don't think that means that he cannot otherwise still feel incredibly isolated and have for whether it be from individuals or the rest of the world or his family as he states and have that fairly represented in that form well i 
I agree with you. I don't think it's invalid. I'm sure a lot of this does come from real emotions that he's feeling. I don't doubt that he feels isolated, but it's just strange to me to present so much truth um, and at the outset joke about your privilege, but it's almost like he's worried about his real privilege. Like he couldn't present the actual picture of the example, you know, of feeling isolated while having all this privilege. So he had to present Bo Burnham, the character that's exactly like me, except for a few things, um, who is roughing it alone in the house. Like, it's like the important thing is that you feel sorry for this guy, Bo Burnham. To me, that crosses into this is kind of like a narcissistic aim. Living with someone else constitute privilege? I don't think so. I don't think- But living, but being alone in a tiny space and sleeping in a bed surrounded by definitely in some ways constitutes underprivilege emotionally. It, it's okay, not that. even that. I think that the bigger problem is the fact that he feels that to feel sorry for him is he's constituting a fake reality for, for me to elicit a deliberate yeah. reaction from the audience. I would yes, not to otherwise- Which is to make you feel sorry. Exactly. Why is it so important that we feel sorry for this Bo Burnham character. I would like, feel sorry me, for him even the, the privileged game. version of Bo Burnham as well. Like it's not that yeah, I wouldn't feel right. sorry for him otherwise. It's the fact but that he it, feels that you wouldn't connect with that other privileged Bo Burnham as well yeah. as this other version, which I feel have yeah, problem. Exactly. To me, there's no problem with him making a, a confessional sad thing that says, hey guys, here's how I'm feeling. Yeah. But once you see all the levels of artifice, yeah, there are balls just been done with the aim that you will feel sorry for this character. To me, that's not a very noble goal. It's morally like, dubious. Especially and I, and I when it's angry about inflated it. so much with him as the person. And to find an example of how this can work effectively, look at um, that scene, the famous scene is, is in Kane, where she's sitting in a mansion just doing puzzles. Um, and you can be privileged and still be a very empathetic figure. Yeah. I appreciate that, that to the extent that the artifice of his of the entire setting is trying to make him relatable to other other people who are in a similar circumstance economically. I think it's I, I don't have a problem with otherwise except for the extent that he otherwise conflates that character with himself, with himself. and who Bo yeah. Burnham is. But yeah, that's where it gets weird that, to me. But to, the, but to the extent that the environment, but to the extent that the environment is otherwise representative of feelings that he or anyone else, however privileged, could reasonably experience emotionally, then I think that still resonates. Hmm. Yeah, this is this is the, like I said at the outset of this discussion, the point where the movie's going to live or fail for you. It's like, are you okay with that level of, of artifice? I'm typically okay with the artifice. It's just that I feel like I'm being manipulated to feel sorry for a, a character that's being conflated with himself in every way Except, I mean, that is conflated with himself. The, the presentation of this to the outside observer who knows nothing would be like, this is this guy. Um, I don't know. I don't like the sense of being manipulated by art. The, I'll give you another example of, um, the, as you say, that these things he does to make his, his character more relatable. He speaks about how he was getting ready to go, come back to the stage after he stopped doing it four years ago because, um, because of panic attacks and like the irony that COVID hit when he was going to do that, right? It's like, dude, he, okay, he says, I've spent those four years, you know, like trying to better myself mentally. And I thought I had gotten to that point and then this happened. But it's like, dude, in that time, he wasn't just like working on himself. He wrote and directed a movie and he was just in Promising Young Woman. 
<laughs> like, it's not that bad, dude. Don't get me wrong. Having your career impacted by anxiety attacks is a serious thing. It is, you know, if when things impact your ability to achieve your goals, that is worth being sad about. I'm not trying to take that away from him, but it's again how it, it's like presenting a artificial picture of how bad things are for him in order to elicit sympathy. So it feels like the main artistic goal of this movie is give me all you your feel sympathy. Yeah, I want you to feel sympathy for this character that you know is exactly like me. But oh, it's not me, Bo Burnham. Uh, again, I, I don't see that that's a particularly valid artistic goal. Maybe it's designed as a way of reaching out and connecting to people through um, relatability, but it's like it makes me distractingly it makes me more relatable and more of a dick. I mean, I mean yeah, that's it, the problem. I right. feel like it's he just... comes across as more narcissistic, more of a dick because of this, because he's using people's genuine emotions and weaponizing them in a way that he can mine it for his own likes and his views. It's like, oh, which is... <laughs> Weaponized is a strong term, but I... You get yeah, what I'm saying. You don't get what I'm trying to go for. I do get what, I do get what you're saying. I, I, I think it comes down to this. The currency of this film, to the extent he wants it to be able to relate and resonate, is honesty. I think hmm. that if he had just shown himself, and this would have been an amazing visual, if he just, I don't know what his house looks like, presumably his actual house is nicer yeah, than the guest house. If he just shown himself in a big room with a big TV, it's all white looking kind of isolated and alone. Um, some people may have felt that you wouldn't be able to relate to that, but I think most people still would have thought, looked and said, oh, okay, you're experiencing the same thing as me. And that would have been as good, if not better, a form of honesty. I agree. To I totally agree. I totally agree. Yeah, perfect. Maybe maybe, maybe the, re the reception to this film proves me wrong, but I think people connect with honesty, right? The, the space of the room and the frustration of the room could have just been the frustration of, I have this goal that I have to make this comedy special. I'm using this room as a studio. It doesn't have to be presented like I'm living here and I'm doing it tough. And again, the, the, the problem with it um, is that people like me and Virat, um, I'm, I'm not sure if you do, do, Glenn, but I'm assuming you do as well. To some extent, when we look at the stuff that's not real, like I, the example shot I gave before of the wide shot, where it's like, it's obvious this shot was designed for you to fail. I just look at that and say, okay, this is performative sadness. You know, it's the things that distract from this being read as honest that stop me from being able to empathize with Bo Burnham, the character or, or the film yeah. in the way that he clearly wants me to. And I just, I want to raise two examples. The two examples of very famous, very rich, very successful people being in lockdown that have resonated for me. Both of these examples of things that were films but weren't released as like features. They're both, uh, for lack of a better term, content. Um, both people are very much in my one is from Mel Brooks, where it's just him in his very extremely nice house um, with his son outside, not on his 90, 90 something birthday, not being able to speak directly to him. Which, hey, you live in a great house for Brooks, you've, you've worked hard, good for you, but you still can't be in touch with your, your son. Um, the other one that resonated with me is from Elton John, a man who has obscene amounts of wealth. And he's sitting in one of his canoes in one of his living rooms, looking out at possibly one of his tennis courts. And he's clearly alone. Um, he has, he's, he was there with his husband, but, and, but he was still alone. And that resonated with me. And I, do, and I don't need to know how much money Elton John has or doesn't have for that to be relevant. And I feel that I don't begrudge the way he Bonham did it if he wanted to be as relatable 
but I feel it trades off some of the honesty, which the film otherwise could have banked on and could have just better, um, just made audience feel that that you're that much more where I am, mm. which is much more crucial to this particular film succeeding. And you're right on the money, Glenn, when you say that Perfect. honesty is the currency. The cur- It's being presented like it's a raw confessional and people, when they watch it, genuinely believe it because it, because so many, if you know a bit about Bo Burnham, so many aspects of what he presents are directly him, that you assume it's, he's telling the truth. Yeah. You know, he well, presents it to you in a way that you start take like he shows clips of himself in the past and tell, tells factual things about his career. So you're like, all right, this is real. More than most comedians. Yeah, so it does definitely feel like a betrayal, right? I wouldn't say betrayal. I would just say a lack of openness, which the film, which the film severely lacks. And and we wouldn't be having this discussion if he nailed it. We're having this discussion because we noticed that these things were performative. And it's when you dig deeper, it's like, oh, it makes sense. Why? If he nailed it, if it was artistically as great as everyone was saying it was, then we would accept this artificial character of Bogan. But it's misjudged. Yeah. I think that's. Is there anything more to say? I don't want want to talk about (laughs) this anymore than we already have. Yeah. It was so interesting to me to think about this movie, though. Yeah, I'll have. I'll have. Sorry, we're having connection issues here. That he may have done this in an ill-judged reaction to nowadays celebrities ever rich have to appear like they're one of us. I remember a comment I think Chris made in the context of the Oscars about Emerald Fennell of all people about her commenting about hold in a garage and obviously she and it's like house. my point is i don't care how nice a house everyone from now lives in i don't give a damn how uh, rich people are how well they live i think a lot of people do and i think that is something that a lot of celebrities and this is a prime example should um instead of just trying to push to the side or ignore it respond to and consider it a more mature way if it's something the audience wants to see or if they want to make it a part of whatever performance piece or story or narrative they're telling yeah i think you don't you shouldn't just brush it aside you are rich you've done well good for you and there's a, i think there's a mature better way to respond to this than i'm just going to film this in a out of out of sight out of mind place that makes me look like, as much as possible like the rest of you but it's all good because at the front I say, I'm white and I'm privileged or whatever. God, that was so, and he kept saying it. He did. You know, I watch a lot of YouTube critics, comedians, and all of them feel they have to acknowledge this. And you no. don't. It gets no, annoying. You don't. It, it's serious. I know I'm a white guy. Maybe I should shut the fuck up, as Babanum says. But it's like, and he passed it. That particular sketch five or six years ago. When it has yeah. already been done. And... It's, yeah, it's been done to death. And at a certain point, it's like, why does he keep bringing it up? Does he feel like he doesn't have credibility because he's white? So he needs to, let's acknowledge the elephant in the room. You know, I'm white. White people are bad. I can talk, I can make jokes about a white woman's Instagram because I said white. Imagine if it were, if it were a woman's Instagram. This guy would be canceled to Mars, you know, like and, get his ass to Mars and don't come back. Again, that, that's the point about pushing up. But just to be clear, um, yes, there are certain discourses where I feel it is appropriate and on certain individuals to, yes, acknowledge privilege if that is of relevance. But I don't think it was of relevance here. It wasn't relevant, except for, as I said earlier, who's isolated his house. Yeah, but but like I said earlier, and this is another point in how this movie is narcissist art. It's advertising his wokeness. 
it's the same as like the sock, sock puppet bit about, you know, where he did, talks with all these Marxist um, memes, basically. It, it's it, like, it, it's, don't worry, it, guys. I'm harmless. I'm it, one. Of, it, I'm, I'm one of you. I'm woke now. I've yeah, followed it, the, the it, discourse. It's, it's earning. It's earning that kind of goodwill cred, so yep. that when he goes deep and raw and honest, you give him the benefit of the doubt. And he's trying. That's why to... I compare him to the character in in Promising Young Woman. It's so performative. <laughs> I'm not saying he's as bad as know, that guy. I know, I, of course, I he's not it. as bad as that guy. Which is a weird crossover. I know. Like, I, don't I, worry. I, I'm one of the good guys. Yeah, I you can trust that. me. Yeah, but no, but should you? Oh my God, mm. I'm gonna disappoint you in the end, like all the guys. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. I've, okay, I've got nothing more to say. I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna get more and more angry the more and more I revisit this thing because it's just horrible. Anyway, that's it's how just I illustrated. It. it illustrated a lot of currents in contemporary culture that I don't like. Yeah, totally, I agree. Yeah. So okay. that is Bo Burnham inside. It is now streaming on Netflix alongside Bad Trip and Good on Paper, Three Summers is out in cinemas. There's other stuff on Netflix too, like a lot of other movies. I'm actually watching a lot of stuff on Stan. And Stan Amazon is better right than now. Netflix for movies. That's been my, they've got pretty good. They just got Endless Love on there, so I'm going to watch that in a couple of days. Cool. Stan, yeah, streaming. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, reading too. There's... And DVDs going into my DVD collection. Nice. Physical media has its charms. It does. Go yeah. support Film Club while they're still with us. Not yeah, to say that they be... won't be, but they might not be. So go there and keep them around. Yeah, I picked up my Brat Pack movies. Never seen all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and take care. Let us know what you want us to fight about. And we're doing our retrospective next week on a favorite director. I think yes. Edgar Wright. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it, yeah. He has a new film out in a couple of months. We're on a pandemic break. Seems like a good time to delve into his filmography. I, I love his stuff, really... generally. So I'm, I feel like I, I will, oh, I'll, yeah. I'll enjoy it. It'll be like a Billy Wilder special. It'll be like, ah, uh, here are some of the favorites. Yeah, yeah and Edgar Wright is like, compared to the stuff we've reviewed today, it's like, here's some actually brilliant comedy. Baby Driver is my least favorite of his, so there you go. I, I love everything else. Well, World's End. I, I, I love World's End, Baby Driver, yes. Did you say at World's End is your least favorite, Glenn? There's a bite. All right. I love a world, the World's End more than Baby Driver. Any day of the, any day of the week, yeah. Baby Driver, I felt so out of step with um, everyone on because I really... you and I going to agree mostly... again. It's going it's to be, it's no, gonna no. be pretty obvious. I really like, no, I felt out of step in, in that I actually really liked Baby Driver. I saw what people were criticizing it for. I think we'll talk about this next week, but I thought it was dumb on a number of levels, but I loved the direction so much that I overall still recommended the film. But everyone I spoke to hated it. It's a it's I didn't, I didn't film, hate but... it. It's my least favorite Edgar Wright film, which still makes it a really good film compared to a lot of other directors. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's... Stay tuned for more of this. Next week, <laughs> I'm going to rewatch Sean there for the third time. I, 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 I actually haven't seen Scott Pilgrim since release, so I'm keen to rewatch it. Um, but just as a aside, so we probably should bring up next week. But I watched The Wicker Man, the original, for the first time yesterday, and I only realized when I looked up the cast list. But I love, I know you watched Hot Fuzz last week, so there's particularly the mind, but I love, love, love that the main actor in The Wicker Man, the man who plays the cop who goes to the village full of people who maybe not have something on their mind plays one of the villagers in Hot Fuzz. I think that's one of the best things. 
Hmm. A nice, a beautiful piece of synergy that I did not realize on first watching Hot Fuzz. So just another Edgar Wright, small tidbit there about how good he is. Right, right. Oh, so that's his village. The Hot Fuzz village is his village growing up. Interesting. But we're, we're going to talk, we have so much more to talk about Edgar Wright next week. Have a wonderful night whenever you're listening. Stay safe. Don't be uh, performative. Let us know what we should fight. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Don't be performatively woke or performatively sad. Um, just be real, guys. Keep it real. Stay real. Yeah, stay real. That's right. Yeah, stay real. <laughs> Hang loose. Yeah, yeah. Take it easy. Yeah. Good night. Bye. Good night.